Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. Look, these aren't pie-in-the-sky dreams. These are actionable policies that we can get to work on right away. We can live up to our responsibilities, meet the challenges of a world at risk of a climate catastrophe, build more climate-resilient communities, put millions of skilled workers on the job, and make life markedly better and safer for the American people all at once and benefit the world in the process. The alternative? Continue to ignore the facts. Deny reality. Focus only on technology the last century instead of inventing the technology that will define this century. It's just plain un-American not to. Joe Biden has just released the details of his $2 trillion plan to combat climate change, firming up a key pillar of his platform heading into the 2020 election. The proposal is being pitched as a way to boost the American economy, create millions of jobs, and build back better coming out of today's profound public health and economic crises. The official Biden climate plan comes on the heels of the Biden-Sanders task force recommendations on addressing climate change and environmental injustices, as well as the House Democrats' 500-page report on solving the climate crisis. We break down key elements of these three proposals on this episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I have both my co-hosts on, well, Shane's still remote, but I'm here with Brandon in my little COVID bubble. And it's nice to be just like on the line with you guys and no guests this week, just uh, catching up. Julia, you forgot to say the award-nominated political climate podcast oh, so uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> we are we're award-nominated it's the uh, los angeles press club's uh 62nd annual awards i believe uh, and we have three entries in uh i think alongside the la times oh, yeah. npr Stiff competition for us. 100%. My idols. Oh, I'm terrified and super excited and we're in great company. And uh, I'm scared for them, though, really. I mean, there's no competition. What are we talking about? I I found a way to work this into every conversation I had over the weekend. Like there was no conversation too big or too small. No conversation about any issue unrelated where I wasn't somehow able to like sort of passively work. It's just crazy week. Like Work's been nuts, got nominated for three press club awards, uh, yeah. just stuff. No you know, big deal. <laughs> I mean, how do you guys feel now that you're uh, journalists? Come on. <laughs> I mean, there's virtually no silver lining to COVID, but for the LA Press Club, 
they're pretty lucky that we wouldn't be there for this award show because imagine Shane and I getting up there, elbowing each other out for the microphone to yeah. give our speech. <laughs> award speech. Who would you think first? And wow. I don't think the transition to journalism, Julia, is a huge shift. I mean, my opinion has always been newsworthy in my view. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yes. Well, unfortunately, no in-person event, I think, to hand out the actual awards. But uh, we're super excited just to be considered. Seriously, uh, we're in the national reporting and government category for our interview with Harry Reid. And then we are in the public affairs and talk show category with two entries, one with our interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Greta Thunberg and our discussion about um, international climate politics while we were all in Vienna, kind of hilariously. Um, recording in a little hotel room and then the other episode and that is actually our our conversation with the youth climate leaders and their lawsuit um, against the u.s government for their support of fossil fuels so anyway shouting out those episodes we all had fun making them and and in true julia fashion shane and i found out from social media because julia Um, ran to twitter before she told her two co-hosts i was excited i did go to twitter like inst like a moment before i emailed you and slacked you i mean i feel like text messaging is exactly the same as tweeting like you could have typed the exact same characters to us first but you know hey, look, you were tagged in the tweet which is better than a text in millennial speak so i'm just saying it's not that bad okay let's get to the focus of this episode democratic presidential candidate joe biden's climate platform was just announced today as part of a broader build back better proposal the plan is based on seven key pillars One, building modern, sustainable infrastructure that includes building roads and bridges, green spaces and water systems to lay the foundation for more sustainable economic growth. Two, positioning the U.S. auto industry to win the 21st century with new technology, with a focus on electric vehicles. Three, achieving a carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035, which is a key piece of the proposal. Four, making dramatic investments in building energy efficiency. That includes cash rebates and low-cost financing for building upgrades and energy efficiency retrofits. Five, making historic investments in clean energy innovation, including a commitment to accelerating R&D investments in clean energy, sustainable materials, clean transportation, etc. that's on a scale beyond the Apollo space program. Six, advancing sustainable agriculture and conservation. And finally, seven, securing environmental justice and equitable economic opportunities. Here's how Biden addressed that last component in his speech on Tuesday. And as we do this work, we need to be mindful of the historical wrongs and the damage that American industries have done in the 20th century, inflicting environmental harm on the poor and vulnerable communities so often black and brown and Native American communities. Polluted air, polluted water, toxins raining down from communities that bore the environmental and health burdens, but shared none of the profits. Growing up, breathing that in every day, it's poison. So digging in there a little bit further, uh, one big takeaway is that this is a $2 trillion plan across four years, which is a massive increase from the $1.7 trillion plan over 10 years that Biden had initially proposed while running for uh, the nomination last year. So clearly the progressive wing of his party has had some influence here. That uh, 100% clean electricity by 2035, that is a massive shift of the timetable from the 2050 timeframe the Biden campaign was considering previously. 
We've also talked about uh, the environmental justice elements. Uh, 40% of spending would uh, reportedly go to uh, frontline communities and communities disproportionately affected by pollution. So that's another uh, key part of the progressive platform that's worked its way in. I'm unclear on what exactly the 40% is coming from. It says 40% of overall benefits of spending. So a little bit of detail to work out there. There's also a climate core, an idea that comes from the Inslee campaign of, of putting young people to work, uh, rebuilding America and then planting trees and building resilient cities, things like that. Um, then we've got reentering the Paris Agreement. That's been something Biden's talked about before. Federal procurement of renewable energy, which I think is one of the most direct and tangible impacts of this plan that he could have kind of on, on day one. Other elements would need to be passed by Congress. But I'll stop there because, Brandon, you've been in touch with the Biden campaign. You also have been following within this plan. What are some of the other key points that uh, you want to highlight? Yeah, I think when you really dig into the details, I mean, just... We can talk about the politics of this, but on just the pure policy uh, piece of it, there's really exciting things in here. Not only the standards that you mentioned, which are uh, many of that comes from the progressive community, the Inslee plans that, you know, was very excited about. But Julia, you mentioned the procurement piece, and this was a big part of Elizabeth Warren's climate plan. You know, we can unleash an in industrial mobilization through the use of federal procurement power, much like they did in World War II mobilization, arsenal of democracy. Uh, and so you see, if you read between the lines in the plan there, there are some of that um, uh, embedded into that plan. And also some innovative new you know, financial innovation that we're going to need to accelerate the deployment of these technologies. So when you talk about low-cost financing to electrify every home in America, uh, you know, there is, um, you know, hints of some of the stuff that's inspired by, you know, Saul Griffith uh, and his Rewiring America, you know, coalition where you could do things like explore how you could use, you know, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac like they did with inventing the financial innovation of the mortgage to create financial products that make it easier for every American to electrify their home, do it in a way that's cheap, saves them money and is easy. And so to clarify, is that somewhere in the plan, in the depths of this proposed plan that came out today? Or you're saying that's something that's happened in the broader ecosystem of discussions related to this? You know, as reflective of Joe Biden's leadership, where he is collaborative and inclusive and has worked with so many different groups to have input on this plan. I mean, if you think of the number of stakeholders from labor unions to the uh, environmental justice community to industry um, there are so many, uh, you know, groups that have been, uh, you know, big environmental organizations that have been involved in this. Um, and so, you know, if you look at it, there's, it's, it's not uh, spelled out exactly in the plan, but, uh, there are hints of it. And I think they're exploring some of these really innovative approaches and will be fleshed out over time. Shane, I want to go to you in just a second, just to highlight a couple other pieces before we get there. One, we got to note net zero greenhouse gas emissions economy wide by 2050. That is the sort of anchor of this plan, which is something that we've now heard from the Bernie Biden task force. We've heard from House Democrats and Senate Democrats. So that's really a, a clear element of the Democratic platform at this point, which really only entered the conversation a year or so ago, I think stemming from the IPCC reports. So just wanted to note that that is a central point of this plan. Then of course, again, clean electricity by 2035. On this front, the plan specifically calls for establishing a technology neutral energy efficiency and clean electricity standard for utilities and grid operators. 
And to get to this goal, it calls for extending and reforming tax incentives for clean energy, including wind and solar. It talks about leveraging private sector dollars to maximize investment and also for increasing the electrification of other sectors of the economy to help drive down emissions overall. Also, we talked about the federal procurement piece. Biden's commitment is to increase federal procurement for clean energy technologies by $400 billion in his first term for technologies like batteries and EVs to help position the U.S. as a, quote, world's clean energy leader. And I mentioned EVs. That's a major component of this plan. First of all, government purchasing of EVs, but also building 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the country. It calls for establishing ambitious fuel economy standards, standards that the Trump administration has actually rolled back, which would help incentivize EV adoption going forward, and just generally supporting the American auto industry and the manufacturers to build zero emissions vehicles, as well as parts and infrastructure associated with all that. Ultimately, the Biden team aims to create 1 million new auto industry jobs by pushing the industry to take the lead on electric vehicle manufacturing. So Shane, with a little bit more meat on the bones there, I want to go to you. What are your top line takeaways from this plan? So I think what I would what I would say for sure is to caution conservatives and Republicans and, and anyone else who, who does not support Biden that you shouldn't look at this and, and reflexively think it's bad just because it's you know progressive or, or because it's democratic or, or whatever. And, and I know we're in a campaign season. A lot of it's good. Like a lot of the ideas and concepts in the Biden plan, I think, should not be viewed necessarily as progressive or Democrat, but just sort of forward thinking economic investments that could help grow the economy and, and decarbonize the economy in a smart way, not in sort of, you know, a, a super aggressive way that can that can harm jobs and, and their, you know, reliability and all that sort of stuff. But I guess what I would what I would really want to dig in on is most of these good ideas can be executed well or they can be executed poorly. So you're talking about um, net zero carbon economy. That sounds like a pretty great idea. And there's all sorts of different ways to generate, you know, offsets because obviously net zero is very different than zero. And so are we talking about, you know, responsible farming? Are we talking about conserving lands? Are we talking about carbon capture? Are we talking about, you know, planting trees or, or, you know, reforesting in certain areas? I'd want to know exactly what net zero means to the Biden um, policy group and, and how they, you know, propose to get there. A clean energy standard is another concept that I've always been a fan of because I think it puts the power sector in a, in a position not to fail, but to succeed uh, with new technologies and, and sort of with a different way of thinking. Um, but again, there have to be exceptions to that. Um, and I'll, I'll lump this together with transmission policy, which is another thing that we really need. Um, and, and, and the Biden plan does mention it. If we're going to have uh, larger amounts of utility scale clean energy brought onto the grid, who pays for this? How does it work? Are there exceptions? Um, so looking at a clean energy standard, municipal utilities and rural cooperatives I think need to be treated differently than maybe IOUs and independent power producers. When do bonds retire on certain current generating assets? Is it going to be the end of the world if a few fossil fuel plants stay in operation, the most efficient ones that were built during the Obama administration with state-of-the-art technology? Is it the end of the world if they stay on you know, past 2035 to allow those bonds to retire and make these communities whole? A lot of the time, as you all know, um, rural cooperatives and, and municipals are owned by small governments and, and um and individuals. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, broadly speaking, a lot of these concepts are exciting. Uh, the EV concepts are exciting. But again, how exactly are we going to spend that money? Are we creating prize money for companies who can innovate? Are we going to put mandates on existing auto manufacturers or open up the market so that new auto manufacturers who want to be all electric can compete for those same dollars? 
I haven't seen enough detail there yet. But so I guess broadly speaking, what I'm saying is I think the concept of investing in a state-of-the-art economy that will lower emissions uh, and make a smarter uh, power system, a smarter transportation system, those are all good things and people shouldn't reject them solely because they're coming from a Democrat. Um, I would really want to dig deep if we got to the point where a, a, a candidate Biden became a president Biden. How are we going to enact these policies? How are we going to make sure that they're that they're implemented equitably? How is this money going to be? I don't care if it's two trillion dollars, one trillion. I don't care what it is. How are we going to spend it? And is it going to be done in a way that actually maximizes the value? So all that is to say, because I've been droning on too long, some really good concepts, some concepts that I don't like very much. But the 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 devil's in the details and, and just sort of trying to work through how these things would be done in a way that doesn't damage communities and economies, but actually helps them grow and helps them improve. That's uh, that's fair. Um, well, you mentioned jobs, and actually that's how Biden pitched this plan today. Here's a clip of him comparing his view on combating climate change and, and, and supporting clean energy compared to President Trump. Here we are now with an economy in crisis, but with an incredible opportunity, not just to build back to where we were before, but better, stronger, more resilient, and more prepared for the challenges that lie ahead. And there's no more consequential challenge that we must meet in the next decade than the onrushing climate crisis. Left unchecked, it is literally an existential threat to the health of our planet and to our very survival. That's enough for dispute, Mr. President. When Donald Trump thinks about climate change, The only word he can muster is hoax. When I think about climate change, the word I think of is jobs. Good paying, union jobs that have put Americans to work, Americans to work, making the air cleaner for our kids to breathe, restoring our crumbling roads and bridges and ports, making it faster, cheaper and cleaner transport American-made goods all across the country and around the world. Jobs. So Shane, I want to go back to you. Um, You mentioned jobs and this really needs to, any plan needs to support Americans and American workers. Do you think this is going to resonate politically in this moment? Taking off your policy wonk hat and putting on, you know, your perspective as a political, you know, as a politico, uh, what do you think about this framing from Biden? It's absolutely the right framing. I mean, in, in, as a general rule, I think one of the things we learned uh, from the 2016 election was that Trump, uh, despite all the rhetoric, um, he was highly focused on American industry and creating domestic jobs. He won over a lot of union voters who had been, you know, voting Democrat traditionally for the past several decades. And so I think, you know, Biden's messaging is right on, not only because that's sort of where the American mood is right now, but also because we're in the middle of a, a COVID driven recession. And so jobs has to be the message. And I don't disagree with candidate Biden, Vice President Biden, whatever we're supposed to call him, that um, that the clean energy economy is a really great way to revitalize our job market. In fact, I fully agree with that. Um, so I, I just hope that he has folks on his team that do understand the nuances of power markets, that do understand the nuances of siting transmission and planning transmission and interregional transmission and how to bring clean energy resources to the grid. How, I hope they understand you know, that when you want to deploy uh, EVs, not just passenger EVs, but as he talked about, heavy duty EVs that can move product from our ports and our warehouses through our cities, 
uh, without emitting uh, uh, air pollutants, that he understands that that requires a lot of grid modernization on the distribution side. That requires uh, charging infrastructure that's not just there, but well-placed. Uh, there's going to be a lot of load shifting in the power sector. And so these are all important things that need to be thought through. His messaging is spot on. Um, I just hope that that messaging is being driven by a deep understanding of policy rather than, you know, sort of uh, talking points that he's getting about uh, $2 trillion in 2035 and just sort of picking numbers that sound good. I hope they understand exactly what they want to do because I agree with them on the goals. I just hope we agree on how to get there. Well, Brandon, you were on a call ahead of this official release with a bunch of clean energy leaders. It seems like the industry is rallying around Joe Biden. I don't know. Do you feel like this is, do uh, you think Biden's got the right people? 100%. And, you know, this is an exciting moment. Uh, first, if you think about what the political conventional wisdom was, it was that, you know, a Democrat wins the primary appealing to their base. And then in the general, they sort of tacked towards the middle, you know, to appeal uh, to those centrist voters to win the general election. And so I think a lot of people, you know, uh, thought that it was possible that with the Biden-Bernie Unity Task Force recommendations, that that could stake out a sort of left flank, and then Biden could tack towards the center, as you know most political candidates do. But instead, he's embraced this bold, ambitious agenda, number one, because it's good policy. Number two, it's great politics. Everybody is celebrating this. The Sunrise Movement is happy with it. Unions are happy with it. Um, suburban voters in battleground states are happy with it because they see the potential for jobs. They see the potential for reducing pollution in their communities for them and their families. So this is uh, just an amazing, uh, you know, moment for this. And I would say to all the people out there that are listening, you know, we have a group, Clean Energy for Biden. We have over 2,000 volunteers. We are actively, you know, helping uh, Biden get elected. You should get involved. This is your moment. If I mean, we can have this. We could have this plan. We could win the House and the Senate and have a majority, and we could enact this and all be better off. So go to cleanenergyforbiden.com, oh. sign up, and if you've given $1,000, give $2,000. This guy's a political advertisement over here. Brandon, I got I to gotta, I gotta bicker with you for a moment, which we haven't gotten to do in a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of this opportunity. But you talked about, yes, absolutely, there are the people who, who know how to do this. And I know you know how, so I know you're working on the team. So I'm not, I'm not diminishing that at all. But a lot of these dates, so for example, when you look at the Biden campaign plan compared to what he's doing now, when you go from the 1.7 trillion over 10 to 2 trillion over 4, and I don't want to put an overemphasis on the numbers because I think we all know that's BS. But, um, and then you also talk about moving from 2050 to 2035. Those numbers, we know for a fact that those numbers are being advocated for for groups from groups like Sunrise and and others who are on the progressive side, which is fine. But what I'm saying is I don't believe those groups have the skills and the ability and understanding of the power sector and wholesale markets and retail markets to really be able to make those decisions and set those goals. There may be people on, on, on Biden for Clean Energy or on Team Biden that do. But what I'm, get, what I'm saying is how did we get from the campaign numbers to these numbers, is it based on an actual deep understanding of energy markets or is it based on 
uh, pressure from activists who wanted something more well, aggressive. We can, we can actually get into that in a minute because it relates to uh, a check-in on uh, the clean power plan that we wanted to have at the end of this episode. But I'll just, I'll just say that in December 2018, Excel Energy in Colorado set its own goal to cut its emissions 80% by 2030, so faster than this plan. And people cheered, and now Biden has 100% by 2035. Um, it's just interesting that the industry was already on this trajectory two years prior to now. And we've seen the industry trends, specifically in electricity, go this direction. So we can touch base on that in a moment. I just want to say that that was a rousing speech, Brandon. Um, you are wearing a Warren shirt, so clearly like you're struggling with this transition a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, I am 100% Dream big, on board. Dream big, fight hard Warren, his shirt says, everybody. <laughs> Well, I am just so happy that there are planks of the Warren and Inslee plan that are adopted into the Biden plan. This is smart, thoughtful policy with inputs from many experts around the country. Uh, and, you know, Vice President Biden's own experience with the Recovery Act that worked. These investments work. And when people, you know, trim their sails and think like, you know, this conventional wisdom of we can't do it, I mean, Think about how much has changed. When there were those of us calling for more ambition and, and bold policy a couple of years ago, and it was sort of a lonely place to be on climate, talking about industrial mobilization and such, look how much has changed in the last few years. Look at what is happening out there on climate. Look what's happening on Black Lives Matter. I heard the other day that Black Lives Matter, the approval in Texas is higher than the NRA. I watched Shane and I, you know, Shane and me were fans of LAFC. I was watching last night, first live sports in four months. The players took the field and Black Lives Matter t-shirts. They had names of people that had been, you know, um, abused by police on their jerseys. They took a knee for the first two minutes of the match. I mean, there people that think that this stuff can't change, um, look how fast the political moment is changing and that was brought in and ushered in by this young generation that is pushed and and helped get us here and merged it with smart policy technical people to design uh, well, it, a really great plan that if operationalized just to, just would to have push enormous back a little bit and I, i've conceded that the the political mood can change and even said that a lot of these goals are, are achievable i'm not in the can't do it movement um my, my, my larger point was that, for example, Biden's experience from the Recovery Act hasn't changed between three months ago and now. He hasn't been in office during that time. So all those things that you mentioned about Biden's experience, he would have had that experience when he put out his original plan six months ago. So I'm talking about really the delta between there, but also in the planning, Julia mentioned Excel Energy, and they're not the only ones, frankly. Other utilities have made these commitments. This is good stuff. What I'm asking is, are those utilities, is Excel Energy is SoCal Edison, are the rural utilities who are owned by these rural communities who maybe have put everything they have into a state-of-the-art fossil fuel plant that they can't retire until you know 2040 or 2050 just based on the way the bonds are ordered, are they also part of these conversations so that we can make sure that we can do this because we can do it and do it in a way where all communities are part of the solution and no communities are unnecessarily hurt or left behind? So, well, Shane, you were talking about, um, you know, taking care of fossil fuel assets and, and ensuring those communities can transition. I just wanted to note some of the fossil fuel elements of the Biden plan. So 
One of them is to have the Justice Department launch an environmental and climate justice division to, quote, hold polluters accountable. Uh, then that kind of agency was championed by Jay Inslee. I don't know exactly what that would entail, but clearly um, you know, some kind of holding polluters accountable elements. Joe Biden talked about also going after golden parachutes of fossil fuel executives and making workers whole. He did touch on that, making sure that fossil fuel workers were made whole by the companies that he uh, described as abandoning them. He talked about repealing fossil fuel subsidies and also creating 250,000 jobs, plugging abandoned oil and gas wells and reclaiming abandoned coal, hard rock and uranium mines. So it doesn't fully maybe answer your question, Shane, but there are some elements there of, of rebuilding the communities that supported the fossil fuel industry, but also very much going after the fossil fuel industry. The plan does not ban fracking. So to your point, Brandon, of, of Sunrise getting, getting behind this, I think that will be one of their criticisms as they want to see not only earlier benchmarks for big targets, but also really getting off of fossil fuels in a more, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a faster way. Um, my understanding is that politically, the Biden campaign thinks that that would not be tenable in states like Pennsylvania to ban fracking. So clearly they haven't gone there. Uh, they've also decided to support nuclear. Julia, can I, I want to jump on that point because I, I want to be clear. I think you characterized it as I was you know, sort of defending the fossil fuels and I wasn't at all. What I'm saying is I want people to understand that these assets were investments made with like a 30 year time frame in mind. So if if some, you know, ultra sort of anti-climate candidate said, I want to shut down all solar facilities in the next 10 years, I'd say the same thing. So it's not about fossil fuel. It's just about making sure that everyone understands all the different elements of the power sector. And then just real quick on the on the Biden stuff, see, I don't like the idea of sending DOJ after fossil fuel companies. I don't like the idea of going after golden parachutes, not because I love wealthy fossil fuel executives, because I don't like the idea of the federal government trying to intervene in previous contracts. Our constitution prohibits it in most circumstances, and it's just not cool. You want to move forward with a bright new future? Let's absolutely do that together. But I don't like the idea of sicking law enforcement on people, that, you know, industries that you don't like. As opposed to sicking them on uh, U.S. attorneys uh, and inspector generals. I don't generals. like any of it. I, I don't think I've ever been you know, shy about that. I don't, I don't like misuse of law enforcement under any circumstances. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, we got to move on, but uh, those are all valid points. Um, I think the other points I'll leave our listeners with on the Biden plan is, you know, there's not specific pay fors carved out in this. They talk about, you know, repealing the Trump tax cuts as a way to pay for this stuff, but it's not really spelled out at this point. So something to watch for. Biden's also said he supports a carbon tax, but that was not really detailed in this policy. So watch for that. Will it come in or not? Not really clear. And as I mentioned before, much of the plan will require congressional approval, uh, which could be a heavy lift, um, even if Democrats take back the Senate. So lots more to watch for on, on that front. Just one you know, question I have. I'm curious for Shane. I think you know earlier in this campaign, Trump wanted to tag Biden as uh, the Green New Deal and run, um, you know, r run against Biden on this issue. Now that the plan is out, what do you think that means? How, how will the Republicans campaign on the issue of climate in the fall elections? Now, do you, do they do they take them on on this? Do they just sort of cede the ground? What is your expectation for top Senate campaigns and Trump's campaign? I think, it's, I think it's going to be different from campaign to campaign. So, for example, the Trump campaign is not going to respond, I don't think, in any way 
to a climate plan. I, I don't think they're going to try to counter it with a with a different climate plan. I don't think they're going to you know release a, a counter proposal. I think they'll characterize the entire suite of ideas, and and that suite would include you know the climate crisis committee, the Biden plan, the Biden Sanders plan that we're turning to now as just you know a big sort of wish list of Green New Deal policies. And I think that's sort of how the Trump campaign will dispose of this. I think McConnell will do something similar for you know to protect the Senate writ large. But I don't think that applies to individual senators. I think a lot of senators, and we learned this throughout COVID, are losing a lot of clean energy jobs in their states, maybe more than they ever knew existed. And so I think the the candidates who are really sort of engaged with their states and their communities are going to understand that the American public, and I'm not saying the liberal American public, I'm saying the entire American public, wants clean energy. They want you know clean air. They care about this stuff. They're if for no other reason, they like the economics of it in their home states. So I think you're going to see members like uh, Cory Gardner, members like Susan Collins, members like Tom Tillis, uh, members like even Senator Braun, um, really sort of messaging that this is important stuff. Not that, hey, the Biden plan is what we should adopt, but there are elements in there that we should really be seriously talking about. But I think from the top of the ticket, if you're just looking at Trump and you're just looking at how the NRSC is framing it, um, it's going to be just another Green New Deal wish list. Well, that's a good setup for this um, Biden-Sanders climate plan that was released several days prior to the official Biden plan that came out this week. And we did touch on it in our episode with Stephen Mufson at The Washington Post. Um, That plan is actually quite similar to the Biden plan, the same 100% clean electricity by 2035, um, net zero emissions by 2050, 100% clean buildings by 2030. So many of the the key elements are the same. So in terms of a Green New Deal wish list, the actual group that came together with members of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they already have, you know, clearly relinquish some elements of the Green New Deal in a decision to partner and get across some of their key elements, environmental justice being one of the most important pieces of that and making that a core component of the Democratic platform. Um, Some other elements of the Bernie Biden plan or Biden Sanders plan is um, to to involve indigenous communities in decision making around pipelines, which is super timely given the recent uh, pipeline setbacks in the courts that we discussed last episode. So the Democrats saying that they are going to set up some new consultation efforts there. Those are some wins for the Green New Deal community, but I would not say that their plan was the Green New Deal when this could have been more progressive even. Like you said, Brandon, they could have gone more left and then let Biden campaign come a little more center, but instead they're quite aligned. So I don't know that the Green New Deal wish list is uh, something that Republicans will have to fear quite so much, Shane, and at least according to these these proposals. I don't think it's a matter of fear. I don't think anyone cares. I think it's that um, you have to use terms that are sort of present in the public sphere in order to evoke a public reaction. And so the Green New Deal has been something that's now been talked about for a year or more um, on cable news and in sort of public policy circles. And that's why I think the branding is useful for campaign purposes. But I think you're right. I don't think any Republicans out there are going, well, is this Green New Deal or is this something different? I don't think they care. If you're for some of these policies, you promote the policies. If you're for tax credits, you promote the tax credits. If you're for EVs, you promote EVs. If you're for a clean energy standard, you promote that. If you're for new transmission, you promote that. But they're not going to package them. Republicans aren't going to package them. But it's easy to package them when it's your opponent and just say, this is a big wish list of garbage and we're not going to do it. Shane, why won't they package it? Because it's hard to even cover these things when it's like, okay, there's three plans in recent weeks from the Democratic side, the ones we've been talking about, and then that House plan as well from the House Committee on the Climate Crisis. But there is just no equivalent on the Republican side. It's not 
bias or an intentional imbalance, but it's just really hard to compare platforms here because there's not, there's never going to be, there's never going to be. Um, and that's not just climate Republicans don't like that multi-thousand page bills that are a quote unquote, save the economy, save climate, say they just don't do, they don't work like that. So if, if they think climate change is an issue that needs to be addressed, the conversation needs to turn to how do we do that? Well, one way is to clean up our power sector. The other way is to clean up our transportation sector. Another way, uh, how, how do we do that? Get more interregional transmission, bring more clean energy resources to the grid, get more I just EVs on the road, get more EV charging out there. I just haven't heard many Republicans planting that flag, even on individual policies. Like this is what I love and think is good for my community, even if it's not a wholesale economic, you know, plan or recovery plan, you know. I don't think that's right. Republicans have been outspoken about that. There have been letters to the Treasury Secretary. In fact, Republicans pushed hard to get, you know, in-service dates changed to make sure that more clean energy companies could take advantage of existing track, uh, tax credits. And that worked. After Mnuchin received the letter, he acknowledged it and they changed the rules. And so that, that's just not true that they've been doing that. That's helpful to, to note. So that was part of the uh... guidance. So Treasury guidance, an issue for several years now, and Brandon can speak to this as well, is that tax credits apply based on when a project begins or when it's placed in service. But those rules are determined by Treasury. So does a project begin when a shovel hits the ground or when the project starts generating electricity? You know, when do these dates apply? And those need to be interpreted uh, interpreted through guidance. And so because of the COVID-driven pen, uh, uh, recession, companies have not been able to move their projects along as quickly as they had planned. And as a result, they would have missed out on these tax credits. So a group of Republican senators asked Mnuchin to shift those dates to make sure that projects that were, me- that were built with their financing, you know, partially depending on the existing legal tax treatment, were able to take advantage of that. I'm not claiming that this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in the world. I'm just making the point that maybe you're not paying attention, but Republicans, individual Republicans who care about these industries and their communities are speaking out both publicly and privately to try to get this stuff done. Yeah, I, I mean, I take your point and everyone's aware of, I mean, especially at state levels and individuals who do take some tactical approaches. I just haven't heard the um, like the marriage of the policy and the politics saying, maybe I don't have a Green New Deal or I just don't have any national plan, but I'm going to make this an important you know, topic in the public eye, rather than doing some very specific targeting, you know, discussions with the Treasury. To me, those are kind of different in all how they're packaged and framed and, and you know, how you want to get people to respond. So I'm just saying I haven't heard the more like inspirational elements of it from the Republican Party, but I take your point entirely that they've been doing some real work uh, behind the scenes and maybe some more public work. Yeah, that and I'm so we're in agreement, of. right? I'm saying the Republican Party is not rallying around the message. They're just acknowledging it's a problem and trying to target solutions to it. Got Which it. <laughs> is not a great approach. Uh, poor Shane, you know, has been the victim of my rants on our internal Slack channel because we haven't had a chance to all get together. Uh, we've had, you know, guests on, on recently. And so he's been a good sport about me, uh, sort of teeing off on the Republican party. But, um, uh, you know, I think again, like what Biden has been able to do here to unite so many different stakeholders and constituencies around this, uh, is, is really, really impressive. It's hard to do. And people made some trade-offs or some compromises that is how policy should be done. That is how government should work. We don't have anything like that right now at the federal level. It's been absent and we need it back. And this is why this is so important. Well, it would be fascinating to see if there was a Biden president. Uh, yeah. Who would uh, support some of these proposals once they got put into, you know, actual legal 
text. And the House Committee on the Climate Crisis, just to note, you know, they had their big climate action plan. Uh, it was not a legal text. It was another, uh, you know, plan and, and sort of a wish list. Again, many of the elements are the same as in the Biden-Sanders plan and in the Biden campaign plan just released. One of the things that came out in that was uh, some environmentalists saying that they wanted, again, more specifics around emissions cuts. They wanted specific timelines for cutting fossil fuel production and cutting subsidies for oil, gas, and coal. So uh, we talked about the Republican perspective here. I'm sure the House plan is a non, non-starter on Capitol Hill, but it's also, you know, we're going to see the environmentalists continue to work their, uh, work their side of this and, and keep, keep pushing these lawmakers. So uh, more on that in our, our episode uh, from a couple weeks ago. But uh, three big plans in a few weeks. It's a lot of content and hopefully, uh, you know, people walk away with a sense of what's happening here from this conversation. Just on the macro politics, you know, my Democratic friends will get mad at me for saying this, but, um, you know, there's a scenario here where the Democrats have a larger majority in the Senate than we were contemplating a couple of months ago. I mean, uh, we could really have uh, the chance to get a lot of this done. And it's really, really exciting uh, to think about that. We have a lot of work to do. We got to keep our eye on the ball. I'm scared as hell that these guys are going to cheat uh, and rig this what? thing. Republicans will cheat? Yes. Or just the Trump administration, you mean? All of them. Uh, <laughs> all of the above. But if we can get through those, and um, right now uh, it, it could it could look pretty favorable terrain to get a lot of this done. I just have a procedural question. Why have so many plans in quick succession like this? Why have this House committee plan, the Biden-Bernie plan, the the Biden plan, plans? I mean, I get that it creates a a drumbeat of news, I guess, but is it just so everyone gets their own byline out there? Because they're not all that different. I mean, forever we were complaining that climate wasn't getting top billing. Now it is. Everybody wants to work on it. Everyone's got a plan. Great. We'll take the best of all of them and then we'll enact it. It's going to be so great. <laughs> no, I just wanted to like clarify like why these all kind of came out and clearly they, there's some, you know, strategy cool to here. to be in climate policy now. It wasn't, you know, a couple of years ago. Sorry, Shane, did you have a point? No, no, I, I agree actually with Brandon that on both sides, it's actually cool to be in climate policy. We started our firm to do that and that was not a super popular stance among Republicans. It's still not the most, but, but people are crowding into the space. Climate policy is cool. What I was going to say to Brandon is he's like a great rhetorician because he just set up a no-fail scenario where you basically say... We're poised to take the White House, the House, and the Senate unless they cheat, which necessarily means you either win or someone else cheated. There's no losing scenario. So hat tip to Brandon for teeing that up. No, I, to, to be clear, Shane, I mean, you know, like that fun on this show, I'm gravely concerned about the way Trump has set this up with attacking mail-in ballots. In some ways, it's having a perverse effect for him where Republicans are not voting mail-in in these elections that are happening. And maybe that will unintentionally have a great benefit for Democrats. And he's totally screwed this up. But I am very concerned that he's setting this up as a way to delegitimize those mail-in ballots and delegitimize the election and suppress the vote. All right. Well, lots more election discussion to come. I just, I want to end with a discussion uh, on the clean power plan. You know, you guys were chatting on Slack about, you know, where are we now in this journey? Republicans opposed it. And arguably there were some real legal issues with the way the Obama administration set up the clean power plan. And yet we have seen utilities uh, take 
take action on their own through market forces. They decided to shed a lot of their uh, coal assets, recent plant closures in Arizona uh, happening despite the clean power plan repeal, which the Trump administration oversaw. You've got Duke Energy saying it has not changed its retirement dates for coal units even now amid COVID. Uh, Michigan-based Consumers Energy saying the same thing. Uh, And they've already called for eliminating coal from their portfolio and achieving net zero emissions by 2040. So those are, again, uh, company-initiated efforts. And Brandon, I know you kind of had a, a question for Shane about this around, you know, y- you know, Republicans said the clean power plan would kill jobs, raise energy rates. Um, but we haven't really seen that play out. Yeah. At a certain point, like where, when is there going to be accountability on this for being right? <laughs> I mean, the, our recovery act plan and the investments that we made created jobs, reduced the cost of clean energy. Uh, now we're just going to scale that even more with the, with the Biden plan. But the stuff that we put out on the clean power plan, I mean, we we were accused of it was going to destroy the economy, you know, and it was going to raise all the electricity prices. I mean, look what's happened. I mean, utilities have now completely embraced this. And uh, this sector is, um, you know, having so much success right now. You know, will will there ever be like, um, will, will we ever gain trust? to be, you know, that we're, that we're sort of right on this and that these mechanisms work. So you're going to, you're going to hate this answer. Um, but the truth is that Republicans were actually 100% right. Um, what, what Republicans had said at the time, and 100% wrong, sorry, I buried the lead. 100% wrong and 100% right. They were 100% wrong. We, I should say, were 100% wrong when we said you could not achieve these types of emissions reductions from the power sector in that time frame. That is clearly proven to be untrue. So I think you're right. There needs to be some accountability there. Where they were 100% right, though, and they're not getting a lot of credit, was what they actually said was, and I know because I helped write some of these releases, if this is possible, and admitted, we didn't think it was, but if this is possible, we don't need to worry about it because the market will sort it out anyway. And that proved to be exactly true, right? So it didn't, the clean power plan never went into effect, was never enforced, and the market through innovation and investment choices actually reduced emissions more so than the plan called for. So two things can be true at once. And in life, that's often the case. One is, yes, it was achievable. And a lot of Republicans were wrong. Two is, it was done by the market, not by the government. And Republicans were right about that. But being forced to come up with the plan to do it on their own, was they might not have done that without that regulation. Even the specter of the I mean, a lot of these announcements have come out in the last year, right? I've been tracking them just for client purposes. And a lot of these utility announcements have come four years after we knew there was no clean power plan. So I wouldn't say that they only sort of engage because of the clean power plan. I don't think that's fair. I think what they're seeing is pressure from uh, their their off-takers, pressure from corporate buyers, pressure from investors, pressure from voters, pressure from activists. I think they're seeing the market work. I mean, that's how markets work. If customers want you to change your behavior and your investors want you to change your behavior, you'd better do it. And I think they're responding to that. Well, the last thing I want to mention is the House's uh, Moving Forward Act. It's a $1.5 trillion package designed to create millions of jobs by upgrading and decarbonizing infrastructure. And I mention it because it has components of all the plans we've discussed today. 
Things like modernizing the electric grid for more renewable energy uh, generation, uh, increasing efficiency of homes, funding uh, carbon capture and utilization and storage, and demonstration programs for energy storage. It supports uh, tax incentives for clean energy projects. Uh, so a lot of those things have actually already been put into legislation. Um, a few other ones I just want to mention, reforming the DOE loan program office, brownfield cleanup reauthorizing the diesel emissions reduction program. And I know some of these do have bipartisan support. I just think it's interesting to ground all these big campaign-oriented plans in some legislation that's been introduced. So finally, to you, Shane, since you're a congressional expert, do you think something like the House's Moving Forward Act would have any chance uh, in this Congress? Or, or what are your outlook? what's your outlook on it? That bill will definitely have absolutely zero chance in this Congress. Um, I, I think if I'm just being perfectly frank, I don't think a service transportation bill uh, will move in this Congress because the the Senate bill and the House bill were so different. And in this case, um, while I know a lot of people like to give the Republican Senate grief for being the legislative graveyard, theirs was uh, co-authored by the Republican and Democrat chairs and passed on a bipartisan basis. So I think from a negotiating standpoint, um, they have a lot more leverage to enforce their will on the House rather than vice versa. One's a partisan bill, one's a bipartisan bill. Um, but it, but people just don't pass great infrastructure, inspiring legislation prior to one of the most contentious elections in, in recent history. So for that reason alone, I would say no. Moving forward, I do think people are going to have to start to think about, not not the, the the Democrat bill as written, but do we think more holistically about what a surface transportation bill looks like? Is the intention solely to ensure that our our roads are functional um, and that you know our bridges are safe and that people can get from point A to point B? Or do we start to think about what a reimagined transportation system would look like? And I think those questions will remain alive um, into the next Congress and beyond, but but certainly not uh, not not in legislative form in this one. No. Can you say quickly what's in the Senate bill that uh, you think is important for our purposes covering climate and energy? Absolutely. So the Senate transportation bill is the more traditional service transportation bill. Obviously, as you guys know, you 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 have reauthorizations for all different sorts of things, for pipelines, for waterways, through the Water Resource and Development Act, and for service transportation. And that's what this bill is. The Senate, Senate bill follows more closely to the actual jurisdiction of the bill, but for the first time um, ever... The Senate transportation bill has a climate title that's never happened before. And interestingly, it's happening under the leadership of, of John Barrasso, along with, with Senator Carper, who's the Democratic counterpart on that committee. So for our purposes, you know, what's really new there uh, is some efficiency stuff, uh, 100 billion or it's 150, 100 or 150 billion uh, for EV corridors along our major highway systems. And then also um, money for port electrification, because as we talked about earlier, moving freight um through electric means, whether that's just electrifying the processes at the ports or also being able to to recharge large uh, heavy-duty vehicles and, and, and have them deliver product throughout the country is, is meaningful. So uh, it's, not a, it's not a climate uh, bill so much as the House bill is, but it does have a climate title and it was passed on a bipartisan basis, which I think is actually pretty inspiring if you think about it. Got it. And so by that, you mean there are climate provisions in the bill? Well, a lot of bills have provisions that one could view as climate-friendly. But this one actually has a climate change title, which is not something I would have expected a John Barrasso bill to have. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. We covered a lot of stuff on this show. Julia, two <laughs> cultural things I wanted to mention. You have two cultural things? Do you yeah. That are kind of like related to our show. I won't know anything about them. Tangentially. So cool. um, <laughs> number one, uh, we talk about, you know, sunrise on the, sh on the show a lot. And 
my wife uh, made me watch, you know, I'm very picky about the television I watch because I have limited time for it. Uh, so she made me watch this show, Queer Eye, which I've never watched. Uh, and uh, But they had a Sunrise Movement um, uh, Abby, uh, who, who works for Sunrise, on, on the show. They went to a Sunrise house in Philadelphia, and then they did their, like, Queer Eye thing uh, for, for Abby. Uh, and everybody should watch it. It is uh, just a wonderful, you'll get a sense of like the passion that these uh, kids have uh, and, and, and the sort of the weight of the world that they feel on their shoulders. Um, it's really, really uh, well done. And it's funny the way that they like help them uh, sort of like change their house and fashion and stuff. Uh, not normally Love that things you got that I totally that. get into. Yeah, uh, but I, you clothes horse you. Literally, like I was hoping my wife couldn't see my face uh, while I was watching it because, like, I was like, I had t- it's it's really heartwarming uh, and just a little, kind of a beautiful story. So uh, I God highly forbid recommend. your wife saw you cry. I mean, no. probably she'd be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just men it's with emotions. Really, uh, <laughs> it's well done, and I encourage everybody out there to watch it. And then you know, for fun. Yeah, you know, we've talked about Lil Dicky on our show and his climate uh, yeah, song his Earth that he song, did. Yeah. His Earth song we had uh, on our episode a while back. Uh, he's got a show on Hulu, which is one of the great TV seasons. It's just hilarious. So those are my two <laughs> cultural recommendations uh, for while you're sheltered. Does he in, have climate involved with his show? No, um, but it's sort of like the story of Lil Dicky and. Uh, a friend of mine uh, recommended it to me, and I didn't, you know, have any expectation that I would enjoy it. And it is like it's hilarious. It's like fall off the couch. So while you're sheltered in and uh, trying to deal with the pandemic, if you're looking for some good TV, sunrise episode on this Queer Eye show and Hulu Dave Lil about Dickie. Lil Dicky. Dave, got it. All right. Well, our Say Something Nice is usually about the opposing political party, which is our final segment of this show. You just did some Say Something Nice for, uh, you know, celebrities and TV people. But do you have one for the political realm? Any Republican that's finally wearing an effing mask. (laughs) Shout out to them from Brandon. (laughs) Why did it take so long to get here? That would include President Trump. So there you go. Uh, Shane, do you have a Say Something Nice, uh, something redeeming that you can say about the opposing political party? I do. Um, it might, mine's sort of a throwback, so excuse me for that. But uh, I was watching a hearing on WebEx, very exciting, um, House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on, you know, sort of the energy uh, sector as viewed through COVID-19 and what it's going to take to recover. And Ernest Moniz uh, was one of the, the um, witnesses. And it was just sort of sobering and refreshing to hear someone speak sort of monotone as he is um, about the energy sector as it exists and as it could exist and how it can be exciting, but how it has to be thoughtful. I realize that's not like riveting TV, but um, I just sometimes forget that it's possible even in the public sphere in front of Congress to have like a calm, rational discussion about a very, very complicated topic in a way that is not offensive to anyone and can maybe even help encourage some people to to get on board with a, with a cleaner economy. And and addressing climate change. So my hat tip to Ernest Moniz. And since we're doing culture references, I finally got around to um, to this season of Billions, which is amazing uh, as a show generally. But they do take on climate, Julia. There's an entire episode and it runs through the latter half of the season about the divestment campaign and how different funds are using you know, ESG 
solely for greenwashing purposes because they can make some money and how others actually really care about impact investing and sort of the interplay between those things. And one of the things that made me laugh, because you guys could picture me playing this role, is like the the college chancellor who actually wants to divest because he thinks that it's the right thing to do, but he's just so unwilling to cave to his students that he refuses to anyway, which is like, that's such a me thing. Even if I agree, I'm not letting, you know, Teenagers tell me what to do. So. At least you, at least you have awareness. That. It's a self-aware statement. Yeah, you just made that yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, believe me, I, I'm 100 percent aware of who I am. <laughs> all right. Well, I've been working my way through Ezra Klein's hour and a half interview with Saul Griffith, who you mentioned at the start of this show is influencing some of the Biden plan and getting a better understanding of what he's working on. So that's my shout out for this week. Wonky though it is. All right. Well, that is the end of our episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, Please go to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I want to make a small case for that. It really does help us. We've been uh, loving reading the comments that you have in there. It's really helpful and helps us guide content going forward and reach just, you know, a a larger audience. So really appreciate those who have done it already. And if you have a minute to do so, we would love that. Maybe if we win, we could do our own speeches on the show. The Press Club Award? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I would be so curious to hear what you guys are going to say. We have to get in the same physical location. It has to be on video and it has to be fueled by alcohol. That would be my only sort of demands for this. (laughs) That sounds like the normal gathering with you two. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Seems only appropriate. All right. Thanks again, everyone. We'll be back next week. Until soon.